This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Right, thank you very much. Uh, Can everybody hear me okay? All right, excellent. Uh, Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Perhaps some of you might uh, find my face somewhat familiar. I was here with Dale Beierstein, I think, in February of this year, something like that, uh, talking about some of our uh, experiences uh, with the British Columbia skeptics over the years. And I mentioned that in part because that was really uh, part of the inspiration for writing this book, Uh, the fact that we dealt with a lot of very ultra claims, shall we say, from people like uh, homeopathists and uh, acupuncturists and people who've seen Sasquatch and that sort of thing. And and the nature of the arguments and the the, the nature of uh, con artistry, uh, thinking of people like Bernie Madoff and organized religion have a lot in common. I will be speaking not about Christians or Muslims or Jews. I'll be speaking always about Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. So I'm not talking about individuals, but you know the bird's eye view of religion. On the drive over here, I was struck by a thought that hit me like a, lund- a, a lightning bolt. I have never had an epiphany in my life. They tell me you're supposed to open with a joke. Uh, I'll try this one. Uh, The guy who invented autocorrect died two weeks ago. He was buried last night. His tombstone reads, Restaurant in Peas. A few items of business. Uh, I do have copies of my book here, hardcover and softcover. $35 or $20. You're basically saving yourself the cost of uh, GST and PSD as long as we all keep that on the QT. (laughs) The book is also available um, online from Amazon, iBooks, uh, uh, Indigo, and the usual outlets. Um, It's only been out for about a month, so if you are interested in finding it, I do suggest you search for the complete title of the book, uh, as the keywords have not sort of filtered their way up through the search engines quite yet. Um, I couldn't help but notice that a few people, uh, just coincidentally, were talking about Uh, Greek mythology. The first novel ever written is the Iliad, the story of the fall of Troy. And you might recall that the fall of Troy features the biggest con in history, the Trojan horse. And it has in fact become even a name for an electronic con that takes place today, Trojan horsing, Um, but it's become synonymous with uh, the art of deception. And speaking of the art of deception, sorry, I've got two masters here. I can't go too far away from this microphone or my podcast will be mucked up, I'm told. But first, I'd like to find an innocent dupe who doesn't know me. You look like an innocent person, but really, so you belong on this spot. I clipped this uh, article out of the National Post a couple of days ago. It reads, uh, North Korea vows to retaliate. And what I'm going to do is just run my scissors up and down this article, and I would ask you, sir, if you wouldn't mind, just say anytime you like, just say stop, and I'll cut the paper wherever you say. Stop. 
right there, you're good. Move up or down? Stay. Okay, I'm not gonna touch that, but if somebody wouldn't mind grabbing that and picking it up. Okay, well, maybe I'll touch it. <laughs> Read the top line on that for me, if you wouldn't mind. Out loud? Out loud, please, yeah. The warning came two days after the UN Security Council unanimously approved new sanctions to punish North Korea. Perfect, that's good enough, that's, that's great, thank you. Where'd my envelope go? All right, rip it open if you wouldn't mind. And I will now amaze you with my psychic abilities. That envelope was in a mayonnaise jar on the porch of Funkin' Wagnalls since noon today. Read it out, please. It says, the warning came two days after. Ta-da! <laughs> Tricks like that have been used since the dawn of time to impress the local yokels. And that's one of the things that I hope to get across in my little chat today. The title of the chat is Wolves Investments and Wolves Investments. The first one is Wolves Investments, and the other one is Wolves Investments. One is God, one is Bernie Madoff. And when I'm talking about cons, if it helps a lot, think Bernie Madoff and think the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy, and you'll start to see where a lot of this is going. Um, I'm in computing, and or at least my, historically I've been in computing, and we have a term called a platform, which perhaps many of you heard. Uh, in the old days, there were only two platforms, the IBM PC and the Macintosh. These days, there are development platforms for gaming and uh, control systems and you name it, all kinds of different platforms. And there are also platforms for the con. The three big platforms for the con are finance, you can think Nigerian Prince if you like, or Bernie Madoff, uh, health, which everybody is concerned about, think snake oil salesman and that sort of thing. And of course, religion, which spans them both, because they not only will cure what ails you, but they promise you eternal life. In the book, I spend a fair bit of time at the beginning talking about uh, scientific philosophy and um, the, the nature of science and what it really means. Most people, when they hear the word science, think, people in white lab coats and uh, doing experiments and that sort of thing. But in its broader term, all science means is knowledge, or perhaps more appropriately, organized knowledge. And one often hears the phrase that there is more than one way of knowing stuff. Knowing being, the, the, the philosophical term for that is epistemology, and I do spend a little time talking about it, but not a lot. So. People in religion will tell you all the time that there are other ways of knowing things. The crossover here for me in, in terms of my skeptical background is that people know that uh, he, uh, mat healing touch, for example, actually works. And they know that through means that we don't fully understand, but they'll justify them as a valid approach to knowing something. But we all know that the history of science and the history of religion have been in conflict with each other since they got started. Religion started out this big, and science was like that, and now they have switched positions, of course, and science is like this, and religion is like that. But religion keeps on telling you that they've got a way of knowing something, and they call it faith. 
I call it irrationality, but they call it faith. So the question arises, what happens when you have two different ways of knowing stuff, and one way says X and the other way says Y? You've got to reconcile them one way or another. And that's what's happened over the last 2,000 years is that constant uh, uh, reconciliation process where uh, religious ideas have been cast aside and replaced by broader ideas of science. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, I told you, uh, I talked a little bit about platforms. I talked a little bit about uh, tricks in general. When one thinks about the motivations associated with uh, priests and con artists, they are essentially the same. The three Ps, profit, power, and sex. <laughs> and I'm glad I don't have to explain that. But before I go too much further, um, I'm going to start out with, two, or with three little short stories. I'm just going to read this one to you. It's a wonderful quote from a book I read recently. Mondeville recommended that doctors should use magical, magical cures, not because they worked, but because if they do work, the surgeon will be credited with a marvelous piece of work. While if they do not work, he will not be accused of having missed some vital step. He advised surgeons always to charge for medicine because the more expensive the cure, the more confidence the patient will have in it. He also suggests that surgeons use big words and, if necessary, make up words to impress their patients. That was said by a fellow named Mondeville, who was an emissary of the French Dauphin immediately before the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. So 600 years ago, the con, in this case institutionalized cons, had already been well thought out. A second story which I like um, and reflects uh, something I ponder about a fair bit in the opening paragraphs or the opening parts of the book is death. Everybody here has heard of Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer? I think he wrote this story, but I can't swear to it because I read it when I was 12 and I think it was an analog magazine and it was a million years ago, but I've never forgotten it. And the idea is that a scientist is sitting in his lab toiling away on whatever sciencey stuff he's doing when suddenly he disappears and he finds himself floating in a void. And he thinks to himself, am I dead? And a voice says, no, you're not dead. And he starts talking to the voice and he says, well, who are you? And he says, well, you can call me voice if you like. And he says, are you God? And he says, no, I'm not God, but I've been around since the dawn of time and I am immortal, so I will be here forever. And he said, well, what do you want with me? And he says, well, I'm kind of bored. So I snatch smart people out of their environs and I use them as playthings to amuse me. So amuse me. And the scientist said, well, that doesn't sound like a good way to spend eternity, so I will try and kill myself. And the voice says, well, that's a good idea, but if you do, you should know that I have the power to recreate you just the way you were before you did it and simultaneously cut off that route of escape. So he says, oh. In that case, I'll spend the rest of eternity trying to think of a way to kill you. And the voice says, you show a lot of promise, go for it, good luck. And that, I think, is a kind of a nifty summation of what it might be like to live forever. Christians tend to talk about a, a world that's only 6,000 6, years old. 6,000 years is a long time in human terms, 
but it's a drop in the bucket compared to forever. And uh, I have no idea what heaven is like, but after you've mowed the lawn there for the billionth time, I'm sure it's got to get a little bit boring. And the last story I wanted to mention um, is from one of my favorite movies, Bedazzled, by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Not the later version, which was created about 15 years ago, which kind of sucked, but the one from the, I think, mid-60s or so, early 70s, something like that. In it, uh, Peter Cook plays the devil, and Dudley Moore plays his sap, and they have a kind of agreement where he can make wishes, and they always turn out to be wrong, because the devil always finds a way to screw them up. But at one point, Dudley Moore turns to the devil, and he says, why are you the devil? You know, why did, how did this all come about? And he says, let me show you. Now, they were in Britain at the time, so there was a British kind of post box there where you could put your letters in. And he hopped up on top of one and crossed his legs, and he said, okay, dance around me and sing my praises. So Dudley Moore, you know, with imaginary rose petals, dances around and says, you're great, you're wonderful, I loved what you did with the planet, and the oceans are terrific, and the sky is nice. And he goes around maybe two times, and he says, hey, this is kind of boring. Can I sit up there? And the devil says, now you know how I felt. Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from those sort of anecdotal stories, shall we say, because um, they illustrate uh, some important points. One of the things I'm not going to do uh, to bore you with, and I don't go into it in great detail in the book, but I do cover it, because part of my uh, intent with the book is it's to be sort of a primer that you could hand to a 25-year-old and say, read this. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but at least you know, you'll be forced to think a little bit. Um, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you the, the major arguments for why there is no God, because I'm assuming that everybody here largely agrees that there is no God. Uh, my personal favorite, uh, which I'll give some voice to, is from... Richard Dawkins, amongst others, who suggested there's only a 0.03% difference between me and a priest. A priest rejects 2,999 different religions and accepts one. I reject all 3,000 of them. So we were only that far apart. And all that preacher has to do is take one tiny little further step, and he's right firmly in my camp. Um, but as I said, I do talk a little bit about epistemology. I do talk a little bit about who you can trust. And the first thing that a skeptic learns is you cannot trust yourself. You are the worst person to trust because you can be fooled. If anybody here uh, recognized that trick that I just did, you might have recognized it from Fool Us uh, by Penn and Teller from about two weeks ago. Um, it did not fool Penn and Teller, <laughs> needless to say. Uh, but... Uh, I am guessing that a goodly percentage of the people in this room do not, at this point, know how that trick worked. Uh, if you bug me before I go, I'll be happy to tell you. We will. <laughs> and uh, for, you, you can set it up and do it at parties in just two seconds if you want to. I'll tell you right now, what the heck. <laughs> if you uh, find the, uh, if, I don't know what I did with the top piece of paper, but basically you take a column like this. Do not use the Globe and Mail because the Globe and Mail is ragged right. Everybody know what I mean by ragged right? Yes. Okay. Use the National Post, which is justified on both sides. Take the article, cut it in half, turn it upside down, 
and use an invisible piece of tape. So now it's upside down. Wave it around like it's a standard article. Cut it with a pair of scissors. Doesn't matter where you cut it because it'll be picked up and read right side up and will always read the same thing which you have previously or I had previously written down on a piece of paper. Did everybody follow that? No. no? The article, you take the original article as it was here, right? Maybe it's a short one. I just take that and cut it right there so that gets cut off. Turn it upside down and paste it back on with invisible tape, okay? So now the actual body of the article is upside down. The bottom of the article is the top line of the article. So now you cut it off, read off the top. Oh, it's all radiant right there. That's right. So with a little piece of tape and a pair of scissors and your local newspaper, you can be a demigod. Exactly right. Do not let your audience touch the piece of paper with a tape on it. They'll figure that out. <laughs> Put that in your pocket. But uh, after that, uh, it's a good trick and easy to perform. There's another uh, version of a similar sort of trick that I document in the book. I talk about tricks because uh, people are easy to fool. And I go back to what I said at the beginning. You cannot trust yourself. You can trust a lot of people. Uh, but even not, but no individual fully, and that always includes yourself. Why? Because we are a walking, talking bag of mental models, all of which do not correspond to reality. We make illogical arguments all the time, and I talk about a few of them. Perhaps you've heard of the argument from ignorance. It goes something like this. Um, I believe there is no God. How do you know there is no God? Well, how do you know there is one? Well, it's a dead tie. We don't know that there is one. We don't know that there isn't. That's the argument from ignorance. And the implication is that the score is now even. But that's not the case. Kind of reminds me of Donald Trump and the Nazis and uh, other people in, in uh, Charlottesville. Correlation versus causation. Many people don't understand that, and I have a few words about that. Uh, availability bias is a very powerful and motivating force in people. Availability bias basically means that you go with the first explanation that pops into your head, the one that's been most recently uh, communicated to you and is the easiest one for your brain to pull up. That's the one that in your brain has the most cachet, even though it doesn't necessarily. I also talk about false dichotomies, non sequiturs, and a few other odds and sods. So there is, uh, again, I hope sort of a primer of uh, critical thinking in the opening chapters of the book. For most of the audience in this room, if you are kind enough to purchase the book, you may want to skip forward about 50 pages or so before you get into some of the other meat. Um, so if we wind the clock back a long, long way, millions of years, to our immediate uh, ancestors, you'll discover that in nature deception is built into the system all the time. Uh, walking stick insects is a form of deception, but I'm thinking more, of course, about deception inside your head. Uh, chimpanzees and monkeys will often shout the cry for eagle when they see one of their mates has a good meal in front of them. Their mate then dashes off to hide from the eagle. They swoop in and take the food. So it's a straight-up lie. Uh, even dogs are smart enough to know that they can get away with lying to their masters as long as they don't get caught. Um, 
So lying is built into the system. We knew how to lie before we were people. But when language came along, we really figured out how to lie. Not just from a pure perspective of one caveman saying to the cave woman, of course I'll respect you in the morning, and the cave woman saying, up yours, you done everybody else in the place and you don't respect them, why would I think you're going to respect me? But that's all part of the con. And in fact, some biologists have even argued that that specific dynamic may be why we are what we are today. The side that wants to con you and the side that has to be smart enough to recognize the con. And they both feed on each other in a feedback loop that one could argue has significantly impacted the way our brains work over time. But the point is, we know how to lie. All of us do. Some of us are very uncomfortable with it, but I'll tell you one thing from bitter experience. If you practice, you'll get much, much better at it far more quickly than you think. So, lying is everywhere, and people will lie to you all the time. One of the uh, phrases we were kicking about over dinner last night with some friends is the idea of a rabble-rouser. Anybody know what a rabble-rouser is? In the old days, you know, say 100 years ago, if you wanted to deliver a political speech, you basically had to stand up in front of a square and shout it out of the top of your lungs because there weren't any microphones or loudspeakers or anything. And not, like, not unlike the people who were a few meters back at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, they can't quite catch it all, right? So a rabble-rouser is the guy who's going up to the people and going, he's right, you know, he's a very smart guy, and then they move on to the next one. And in terms of the con, that's called a shill. Somebody who's on your side telling people what they want to see or telling people what they expect to hear or want to hear and, what, and showing them what they expect or want to see. And religion learned that trick very, very early. And that's expectation bias in a sentence. Show them what they expect or want to see, tell them what they expect or want to hear, and you will be believed. So if you go up to somebody and say, hey, join us, and you'll never die. That's music to the ears of everybody in this room. Nobody wants to die. And so that's the first thing that they sell, is you don't die. Of course, they never have to deliver on that promise, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, as I mentioned, language and its uh, kissing cousin written language made a huge difference in not only our abilities to lie, but our abilities to deceive people. Um, I imagine that for your average schmuck who spent his days cutting down wheat, you know, in the upper, ver upper parts of the Nile Valley or something like that, and might make that one sojourn in his life where he goes 20 miles upstream or 20 miles downstream, and he sees the exact same rituals being performed word for word from another town by another guy that he's never met, that has to seem magical. The fact that shamans uh, were able to say, the full moon is five days from now, all they're doing is counting off on a wooden stick or something like that, that's an early form of writing, and it must have seemed magical for those people who didn't understand how it worked. Language, as I mentioned, is uh, very mushy. You can use words to mean almost anything that you want, which leads me to one of my favorite quotes from Humpty Dumpty, which uh, goes to something like, words mean exactly what they mean and only exactly what I intended them to mean, nothing more, nothing less. But that isn't true. It's half true, but words also mean something to the listener. 
and they're not always going to be the same thing. Uh, labeling is one of the very first things that languages did. And again, it must have seemed miraculous. There's a supposition, I don't know if I buy it or not, but that the idea of labeling and language may have come up because twins often spontaneously create their own language in order to basically beat their parents at something, for the most part, one assumes anyways. And uh, one can imagine a conversation where, you know, the father is talking, or it's not talking, he's grunting or pantomiming at one of his kids, and they point to something and say rock or whatever. And the father queries them and say, well, what, do you, what, what were those noises and what are you trying to convey? And after a little bit of work, he realizes that thing has a name. And I think even then, people would say, well, that's crazy. You can't go about naming everything. I mean, there's millions of trees, and there's, what do you call first tree Ethel, the next one Betty. You're going to run out of names really, really quick. So says, well, no, no, there's another invention called hierarchies. We'll call them all trees, but we'll call just one of them Ethel because it's a special tree, if that's what makes sense. And a great deal of science was nothing but that for the next 2,000 years, just making long, long lists of things, applying names to them, and then trying to organize them into, uh, into a hierarchy. Cladistics in zoology is a classic example. Um, and as a reflection of that and the mushiness of language, of course, one of the things that science did is they adopted Latin naming for uh, at least all the biological side of things because the popular names for aquarium fish, which I'm very familiar with, uh, don't uh, translate from one place to another very well, but the Latin names always do. And that's something else that the church learned very quickly. If you're going to write it down, write it down in code. And don't tell people what the code is. Now, at the beginning, the only people who knew the code were the only people who could write in the first place, the scribes and that sort of thing. But over the years, the Roman Catholic Church, to be specific, said, you know, let's keep it in Latin. Nobody knows what the hell that means. The dead language, and uh, uh, we can keep ourselves secret, but open all at the same time. Uh, again, the idea of language was a huge opportunity for people to express new ideas, and the con just exploded. Uh, 7,000 years ago, your average pharaoh in the Egyptian valleys would argue that he had a good shot at nirvana, but he wouldn't get let in unless his heart weighed less than a feather and some of the, those other types of, of uh, ancient uh, Egyptian uh, categories for people. Over the years, that evolved, and the uh, pharaoh became something of a demigod who was guaranteed to get into heaven as long as he did things right. He did all the appropriate rites and, rites and rituals, um, including having a, you know, a lot of stuff written on the walls of his tombs. Needless to say, the people who are building the tombs were going to ask themselves, why does this guy get to live forever, especially when it's based on my blood, sweat, and tears? So religion evolved again and said, well, we know it's not just the pharaoh, but it's anybody whose heart is, uh, uh, weighs less than a feather and is uh, practiced in mat, M-A-A-T, um, which means in Egyptian sort of uh, fitting in with things, I guess, is the best way to put it, or a way to put it. And they might, too, also go to heaven. And so the pharaohs actually doubled down on that and said, so when you bury me, I'm going to have my buddies slay all of you and bury you next to me. 
but I won't tell you about that until right before it happens, you know. So, <laughs> um, if you walked into a typical uh, church, virtually any time, in certainly in the last thousand years, uh, they would have enormous vaulted ceilings, stained glass windows all over the place. Um, everything would have a special name, a name that imbibes it with a reality that it does not deserve. Uh, Two examples of names that twist reality. Killer whales. What's wrong with the phrase killer whales? They're not whales, they're porpoises. They're the largest member of the porpoise family. Um, so we mislabel the word and most people think orcas are whales, but they're not. They're just big dolphins. Uh, sometimes this can be a lot more insidious. You recall when Obama took power, the Republicans got on the death panel train and talked about stuff that didn't exist. But once you give it a name, it becomes ominous. And the Roman Catholics certainly learned that, you know, with popes and cardinals and bishops and asps and knaves and uh, magical words for the, their ceremonies like communion and so forth. All those things imbued those aspects of behavior with a cachet they didn't deserve because they now had a word. And Words are magical. You don't have to look too much further than the fact that when a pharaoh died, if the next one didn't like him very much, the first thing they did is they carved all his names off of the, the walls because, again, they saw the names as being magical. Uh, Akhenaten, anybody know the name Akhenaten? King Tut's dad. Uh, he's the guy who tried to consolidate all this because he saw the priests and the power structure, which is the pharaohs, being intimately related to each other, and he didn't really want to share power, I don't think, with all of the, the priests, so he put himself at the head of the church. This all should sound very, very familiar. Um, think Henry VIII, if you like. Put himself at the head of the church, declared all the other gods null and void, put 80% of the clergy out of business, and everybody had to pray to the one sun god, Aten. And that lasted until Akhenaten died, when the priests came roaring back, um, all of their temples had fallen into disruin. People were upset that things, you know, you can always blame something on the weather or something like that's gone bad. So they'll blame that on the fact that they're not praying to the right gods anymore. And they wound the clock back and reset the uh, Egyptian religion back to sort of polyism, polytheism. Which is one of the things that made uh, Egypt one of the most durable civilizations in history. Because they were polytheistic, they didn't care. If somebody came in and said, oh, we, we worship Baal, they'd say, who's Baal? And they says, well, he's our god. He says, all right, not a problem. We'll just put him on the list. Baal, all right, off you go. Whereas later on in history, it was more, we worship Baal, and Baal says, you guys are bastards. And that guy worships somebody else, and he says they're bastards. And the next thing you know, they're all going to war and cutting each other's uh, bits off. Um, even art had, was been used as part of the con. And again, if, if, I'm perhaps not making myself clear here, but when priests got started and shamans, they had a small crucible of real knowledge, things like the rising and falling of the Nile and that sort of thing. And they became the receptacles of knowledge to the point where I'm certain over time they'd also know about various herbs and local remedies, they'd set bones, they'd do a bunch of other things, and they would be very, very powerful people, sort of second in rank next to the pharaoh. And over time, uh, 
the, the, well, they learned, for example, they couldn't write down all of the uh, adventures of their various pharaohs because nobody could read. So they built these enormous walls with giant uh, pictograms and murals of the giant battles that you know, Seti I or whatever had fought. Um, and people could see that and understand what was going on. And that translated directly into what was going on in a typical modern church, again, with all the stained glass and so forth. It was a laser light show of its day. The fact that the ceiling is so far above their heads, when most of the time they spent a very claustrophobic life, I should think, must have been very, very impressive. And if you know anything about the history of architecture, you know, enormous amounts of effort went into building those things. That could have gone into other stuff, I would argue, but uh, that's a, a longer discussion. Uh, art, in general, I've already alluded to it, was uh, pictures on walls and that sort of thing, and uh, frescoes, I guess is the right word. Um, there's a fellow named Brunelleschi who came along in the 1500s, I think, and he invented perspective art, which, uh, or linear perspective, I think is the technical phrase, uh, which is dirt simple to implement. You know, you just draw a line across a piece of paper, that's your horizon. If you want to draw a road, you just take two lines and have them end at the horizon and come down to the bottom of the page. And if you want a third line, you drew a third line, which might be the height of the trees. And then as long as you put all the trees so that the top touches one line and the bottom touches the other line, and you move them off into the horizon, shrinking them as they go, you get this fabulous 3D effect out that made a picture look like real life. Prior to Brunelleschi, if you looked at an art, you'd see these big murals, and on the top it would be God. And you knew he's God because he was huge. And underneath him would be the Pope. And you knew he wasn't God because he wasn't as big as God, but he was still huge. And underneath him were all the popes and or all the cardinals and bishops and so forth. And they were smaller still. And underneath them were the peons. And they were literally very, very small in order to convey a very obvious message. I'm big, you're small, and I can crush you. Um, but that got even worse with Brunelleschi because now you could draw horizon lines out and with a little imagination, you could make God appear bigger than the planet, uh, at least in principle, um, and make him even more looming and make the, the pictures even more compelling. And of course, the very next thing I did is to say, I wonder what hell would look like. And if you ever want to see some really horrible art that would make the average aficionado of The Walking Dead stomach turn, all you have to do is look at some of the medieval art of uh, what happens to you if you've been a naughty boy and you go to hell. So religion and the Khan co-evolved with each other. Another little story which I, I rather enjoy, going back to that labeling that I was talking about, uh, a young fellow grew up in a family. He was deaf, and the family could not or would not sign. So by the time he was 8 or 10 years old, the only way he could communicate with his parents was through pantomime. Um, there was no common language whatsoever until somebody came along and uh, showed him, I, I'm assuming American Sign Language or something like that, and you know, picked up uh, this, perhaps, and gave him the sign for book. And then did that three or four times until it clicked. And then this particular fellow's appetite for naming went through the roof, demanding names for everything. And 20 years later, he was asked, how do you feel about your life? prior to uh, learning how to use language properly. And he said, I really hate talking about it because it's, for, for, for me, it's just kind of a big blur, a, 
a mush of ill-defined thoughts. Um, and uh, the epiphany, once the epiphany came to him, it changed his life. Uh, this just a simple idea of everything's got a name, all in and of itself. And all the verbs and other things, they come fairly naturally after the fact, but uh, uh, it can't, can't really be said or overstated how important that was in the history of the world. So that brings us to the con. Uh, there are all kinds of cons, short cons, medium range cons, long cons, and what I call the multi-generational con. The simplest con is the one that's over in five minutes, the, the guy in his suit who says that uh, he lost his wallet and if you can only, if somebody will just give him 20 bucks, he'll return the favor many times over because he's a lawyer and he's got a business card that says so and all the rest of that and he, he throws himself at the feet of some poor slob and that person coughs up 20 bucks and he disappears. That's the short con, done like dinner. Um, the, the, the con E has no opportunity to find out anything because the guy's gone and so is their money. The long con uh, is a very interesting story in and of itself. Uh, who hasn't seen the movie The Sting? Anybody not seen that movie? Okay. Um, it is about the long con. In the 1920s, uh, I should say the dialogue that's used in this thing is true to its day and true to the con artists of its day. Uh, in the story, they set up what's called the big store. In this case, it's a betting parlor. And con a guy into believing that he's got the edge. Um, it's known in the trade as the wire uh, as, a, as a practice. These days, it's done with stock markets and not with horse races, but it's roughly the same thing where you could place a bet when you already know what the result is going to be. They pitch it as a sure thing, and if you remember the movie, Robert Shaw loses half a million dollars or something like that, um, and has to bug off to avoid the police. And this is a perfect con because everybody is compelled to shut up about it after the fact. The store wants to stay quiet, the cops want to stay quiet because, well, they didn't make it plain in the movie, they're all on the take in the 1920s in Chicago where that took place. Um, they know where the store is, and if necessary, they'll direct you to it, um, and they take a piece of the action when it came their way. Uh, the store, unlike the movie, does not get set up to nail a single mark, and then everybody goes home, because setting up a betting parlor takes a lot of time and experience. So they set up the whole betting parlor, and they would run five to seven marks a day through it, taking them for 1,000 to five or 15,000 dollars. And there's a whole hierarchy of people. You know, the inside man is the guy who's organizing the big, the long con. Uh, ropers are just what they sound like. They're people, a large cadre of people that are out there looking for schmucks who just stepped off the train from some place or other, and they're looking for a place to stay, and they uh, chat them up and talk to them about beers, uh, over, talk to them over beers, and very casually, hint that they might have an investment opportunity or something like that. If they're even better, they'll have a shill come in. And the power of the shill cannot be overestimated. It's a very much like peer pressure. Somebody else comes in, pretends they don't know anybody, and says something to the tune, oh yeah, I've heard about this deal, it's a really good one. And then perhaps just disappears. And that kind of validation puts people at their ease far more than it should, because it takes a trivial amount of thinking on the behalf of the con or to make that happen. And yet, when it happens, you feel sudden relief that there's 
almost certainly no chance that this guy is trying to take me. But of course, that's not the case. Uh, there's a, so there's a, the, the uh, big store in the Sting would have been a fixture in Chicago uh, during its day, probably there for five years or something like that before it gets shut down and perhaps has to change technology or move to another town or something like that. And of course, the nature of cons is that you've got to have a way to make sure that the connee doesn't have the ability to come back and bite you. One way to do that is to make sure that they understand that what they were doing is technically illegal. That way they can't go to the cops. But that doesn't mean that they won't come back and try and demand their money back. But a really good con will always present the reason for why the con went sour for him as being the perfect storm, a weird conflagration of strange events that all came together and mucked up his shot at the brass ring. And in a lot of cases, the people who have been screwed over for five or $10,000, and it's a huge money back, money back then, five grand to buy you a whole house, right? Um, would come back the next year and try their luck again because they're so convinced by the con-er that it was just the events that took place and not the uh, uh, evil plans of the, of the inside man that ripped them off. And that leads me naturally to the multi-generational con. And the multi-generational con is just the con taken one step further across generations. But if you're going to go across generations, the rules change a little bit. Because eventually, if it's just something as stupid as the big store, you're going to get caught. So the promises that you deliver have to be unfalsifiable. It's a key component of every religion out there. They're making promises, and they're, you cannot prove them wrong. And that alone delivers them an enormous amount of cachet. Another great quote, which I love, and I always think about it with respect to uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, and Scientology, is from John Cleese in um, uh, The Life of Brian. He is the Messiah, and I should know, I've followed a few. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, well, I've kind of given away the answer to this question already. Who has the record in the Guinness Book of World Records for having written the most published books in the world? L. Ron Hubbard. Really? All science fiction. This guy could pound out fantasies and stories as fast as his little fingers could type. Um, he filled up pulp magazines for years and years and years. And then finally, I think literally over breakfast, they you know, probably had a beer or maybe a, just orange juice or something. And they started giggling and said, you know, if we were to make up a religion, what would it look like? You know, first thing, non-falsifiable. Got to be non-falsifiable. Second thing, um, and they, they, they put a few twists in. I mean, it's the only, quote, religion where you have to pay to learn the religion, uh, which is somewhat unique in, in all that. And I, I hope for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, you're watching Leah Romani's show on the tube, um, the antics of the, I don't want to say antics, they're bloody evil. Um, what's the name of the head of the church? Uh, yeah. Miscavige, yeah. I don't know if you've seen him giving the, uh, the Medal of Freedom to Tom Cruise, but Tom Cruise is a midget, and he's got three inches on David Miscavige. And so I don't know how much you want to read into the Napoleonic Syndrome, you know, of little guys with big ambitions, but I think he's perhaps one of them. Uh, 
it's remarkable that show has stood up for as long as it has. Uh, Scientology is well known for, well, there's a 60 Minutes article in the 70s, I think. Oops, pardon me. In the 70s where um, Morley Safer was chatting with an ex-member of Scientology and they had solution 45 of a list of 100. The solution number 45 was you put a 45 up to the guy's head and tell him to stop doing that stuff or he'll pull the trigger. Um, so they were a pretty nasty bunch. And I don't see a ton of difference between them and any other religion, frankly. Um, so a few words about Bernie Madoff. He is the crown prince of cons these days. Uh, it, I, I don't want to go too deeply into this, um, but who, who under, does everybody here understand what a Ponzi scheme is? Or do you understand the difference between a Ponzi scheme and, say, multi-level marketing or pyramid schemes? Maybe a word or two about that's worth it. Um, a Ponzi scheme, you're bringing in new investors and using their money to pay out anybody who leaves the scheme for any reason. And if you think about that for any length of time, you realize that you've got to pull in a lot more marks at the bottom if you're going to pay out the guys in the middle. And there were lots of people that invested with Bernie who made money. They were lucky. They would put their money in with Bernie, and then maybe four years later, they'd phone him up and say, Bernie, I've got to have my money back. My wife's just died, or my house burned down, or I've got some emergencies that I've got to take care of. I need it all back. And Bernie would give it to them with the interest that was promised. And they walked out in clover. He had to do that, because if he didn't do that, the fact that he didn't pay out one investor would go around very, very quickly, and the whole Ponzi scheme would fall apart. It took the financial collapse of 2008 to bring Bernie Madoff down, when everybody was coming to him and saying, I want my money back because the shit's hitting the fan, and Bernie, his, his empire fell apart. Pyramid schemes are very, very similar, but they're usually a fixed number of people. If you're old enough, you might remember that there were a lot of pyramid parties, especially south of the border around here. So it's a, a limited number of people who come in, and um, you're, the, the math for that's very simple to work out. Uh, and almost always the organizers are the guy who walks away with, with most of the money. Multi-level marketing is pretty much exactly the same as a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme. The difference is A, they're legal, and B, the reason they're legal is because they have a physical product to sell. And that's really the only difference is they have a physical product to sell. Uh, much to my shame, my mother-in-law got involved with Herbalife, and I kept telling her that you're going to wind up with a garage full of Herbalife, and that's exactly what happened, um, because she got uh, victimized by the con. Uh, in my book, I talk and compare Bernie Madoff to the Roman Catholic Church a lot. Bernie Madoff is the godhead. If you're going to invent a religion, one of the first and best rules is to make sure your Messiah is dead. That way you can't come back and contradict you in any way. But you can get around that rule if the guy who invents the religion and the Messiah are the same guy, which is L. Ron Hubbard in the case of uh, Scientology, and in the case of Bernie Madoff, it's Bernie himself. There were a huge number of people that worked for Bernie, whether they knew it or not. 
some guy in Oklahoma City might sell a mutual fund to one of his customers, and he may or may not be aware that 5% of that mutual fund was invested in another large mutual fund that had a 40% investment in Bernie Madoff, that sort of thing. And the people that were in the middle of all of those transactions, I would liken them to a certain extent to the priests of Bernie Madoff. They're out there singing his praises all the time. They're saying he's a financial genius. Um, they're, they're hawking his wares, to be sure. And they're profiting from it enormously. Uh, these are the people, in my opinion, the middlemen of the whole thing that you could argue are largely without blame. They just saw an opportunity for profit. In the case of organized religion, and again, my example is Roman Catholicism, um, instead of uh, mutual fund investors, you just got the entire cavalcade of people from pope all the way down to priest. And one of the things I think that most people don't understand about the Roman Catholic Church is they literally believe that it is worth sacrificing one of you folks if one of their priests survives. Because from their perspective, quite literally, a priest is worth more than you are, at least in the eyes of God, because he's done all that priestly stuff and gotten a, a plaque on his wall or whatever they give him. And that leads us to some of the more egregious examples of what the Roman Catholic Church uh, got into. There's no real analogies for this to uh, Bernie Madoff, but the church itself uh, was in very dire straits in the 1920s. Uh, their popes under glass were starting to rot away. Um, even the phrase hocus-pocus, by the way, was uh, made up by Protestants to make fun of Catholics who had a phrase hoc-est hoc est, um, corpus, I think, which means something to the effect of here lies the body of Christ. And uh, they turned it into hocus-pocus to make fun of, of the Roman Catholics. But they were behind the eight ball. They didn't have any money. The Vatican was falling into disre disrepair until they decided to talk to Mussolini. And Mussolini said, well, you know, if you can guarantee me the Roman Catholic vote, I'll give you back your land. You get your tax exemption. Um, I'll, I'll get everybody to pay taxes to the church directly, and you'll be swimming in it. And they said, done deal. And they also made a similar deal with Franco in Spain. And then they approached our favorite Nazi, Hitler, and talked to him about it, and he said, well, you know, I think roughly a third of Nazi Germany was, was Roman Catholic at the time, and he uh, applied a tithe that they had to pay by law to the Germans that they then turned directly over to the Roman Catholic Church. So that is the European uh, dictator trifecta. They got Mussolini, Franco, and Hitler on board. Many Roman Catholic priests were personally involved in killing Jews uh, to the point of swinging the ballot mats or the, the bats or pulling the triggers or whatever. Uh, if you're familiar with history, the rat line was created by the Roman Catholic Church to take uh, Nazis who would otherwise perhaps be hung or spend a lot of time in jail and hustle them off to Argentina. The list of sins of the Roman Catholic Church are enormous, including, I would suggest, although certainly hasn't been proved, um, that killing of, uh, oh, there was the year of the three popes, and I'm forgetting, the, the third pope took, or the second pope took charge, and he was only in place for about three months before he was poisoned to death. And the Roman Catholic Church wasted no time draining his blood and bombing him and getting him under glass right away. 
because they didn't want to have to deal with the repercussions of, the, of a person being uh, poisoned um, in the church. Um, I, I always like to talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments. Uh, they, they are held out to be the super-duper model of morality, but they are a list. The first four are all of which are about God. Um, you know, no idols, uh, don't swear, take the day off, I'm your only God, I believe, is all four of them. And then after that, I think murder is, non, is number six, and uh, there's a whole lot of coveting and stuff below that. But there's a ton of stuff they don't mention, like kidnapping and rape and murder and slavery and all kinds of things that we'd find abhorrent today. And who can, uh, one of my friends is up from Australia, Jim Henry, in the corner there, also one of the founders of the BC Skeptics. And uh, in Australia, Cardinal Pell, if you've been following the news, uh, bugged off from Australia because he oversaw the priests that were responsible for some 7,000 complaints, and those are the only ones that, complaints that were filed. Uh, Pell bugged off to the Vatican where he thought he'd be safe for reasons I don't fully understand. Maybe the, the current pope decided to punt him out because he was too toxic, but he's now facing charges in Australia and it'll be interesting to see how that turns out um, because uh, I, should, I should say Cardinal Pell gave rise to the, uh, uh, the menu for Roman Catholics for Roman Catholic sins, which I think was 15,000 for fondling over the clothes, 25,000 for fondling under the clothes, and uh, 150,000 for sodomy, and there were a couple others in the, in the middle. And that was their payout list, which they would try to invoke across the board. I can see you handling your mic there. I think I'm uh, roughly out of time. Um, I hope the, the you, if you're interested, read the book. Uh, there's some food for thought in there. There's definitely some uh, suggestions and ideas that are controversial. Um, I do have a website, The God Con. There's a bunch of business cards on the table. Feel free to grab one of those. Um, and I guess we'll be turning it over to questions unless you wanted to. Well, that's great. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.